as has already been noted in our announcements, as well as the fellowship that we enjoyed just prior to the beginning of the services, the worship period, it is indeed a blessed opportunity we have this morning, and as you might well remember, let us also not forget we have a 2 o'clock service this afternoon that will serve for our evening service. So if there might be someone that you know of that typically does come for the 5.30 service but is not able to be here this morning, you might kindly give them a call or let them know so that they'll not be caught off guard at the 5.30 time period this afternoon when, uh, when you and I are not here at that particular time. As we look forward to that period of singing, and as we come together this morning, I would ask that you think with me about one other of the lessons involved in our series of studies dealing with our books of the, that the Bible Bowl is covering this year. For several weeks now, we have involved ourselves in a consideration of books such as James and 1 Peter and 2 Peter and 1 John. And as we've studied them, we have been studying those very same chapters that our young people are studying as they prepare for that Bible Bowl competition. We are nearing the close of our study, as you might well imagine. Today, I would invite you to consider with me the books of 2nd and 3rd John as they appear near the end of the New Testament. These, in fact, are rather brief books, as you may well know and appreciate with me. In fact, they are the two shortest books in all the New Testament. If one actually makes a firm consideration and count, 2nd John is a little bit shorter by a few words than his 3rd John, but needless to say, they are both exceedingly brief. That, however, does not in any way question or reduce or diminish the nature of their importance. For the Holy Spirit saw fit to, in fact, preserve these books and to have them written initially. That means that they are worthy of study by you and me as well. And tomorrow, this morning, I would invite you to give some attention to them as we look at the characters to be found in them and learn some dramatic lessons from them. Who wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John? Perhaps the name is rather suggestive. It was the Apostle John. In addition to the Gospel according to John and the Revelation, he wrote all three of these books that bear the names 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And so he too wrote these two books, 2nd and 3rd John. The key word. We've often noted how useful that idea can be. When you read these two books, the, there really is not much question. It is the word truth. Some 11 times that word occurs in this brief consideration of two chapters. 11 times. John clearly wished to emphasize not only the importance of truth, but the fact that that truth must exemplify itself in sanctified living for the cause of the Master. You and I will see that as we look carefully at the characters in these books and use their lessons to help us today to nonetheless live by truth and to exemplify a life satisfactory and pleasing to our Heavenly Father. I would suggest that there are five characters you and I will consider in our journey this morning. As we look at each one of them, if you wish to make notes in your Bible or perhaps use a notebook to write some things, you might want to take note about some of the ideas we can learn that will help us today as we study these characteristics of these five people. First of all, the very book to whom, the person to whom the book of 2 John is addressed. Would you read with me 2 John verse 1? The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all they that have known the truth. 2 John, this short epistle, is addressed to this person who is merely called the elect lady and also 
included is her children. Who is this person? What type individual was she? This book is our only specific reference to this person, and thus the details perhaps are not all that we would like. But let me share a few things that we can conclude based on this short book of Second John. First, that very phrase, elect lady, in the Greek, the word is kyria, K-Y-R-I-A, at least in our English. It may have been that that was her name. John may have been addressing this epistle to a lady, a woman, by the name of Kyria. That was, after all, a female name for those living about 2,000 years ago. But notice that the meaning of the word in Greek is lady. So it could also be that that was not her actual name, but rather that was a term of designation or signification indicating that it was a very significant woman to whom he wrote. We are not sure which, but nonetheless, it can easily be concluded that this woman was a mother. She had children, for John makes reference to her children. And what's more, in the very last verse of the book, she had at least one sister. Might we conclude from this some interesting thoughts as we look at the characteristics of her children? Would you please read with me also in the opening chapter, beginning in verse 2. For the truth's sake which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever. Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth, as we have received a commandment from the Father. This lady was highly respected for her life in truth. Did you note with me the wording of verse number 1? And not I only, but also all they that have known the truth, recognized and understood the life that this lady had chosen to live. That by itself is a dramatic lesson, isn't it? Understanding that she not only influenced herself, but others were aware of her faithfulness, and others in being aware of it were influenced for the good by it. Oh, the influence and example that you and I are able to share and exhibit toward others. Others listen to what we say. Others are aware of where we go. Others are aware of the kind of person we are. They know if we're the same on Sunday as we are on Monday. They know the language that we utilize on Tuesday, if it's the same as would be appropriate on a Wednesday evening. They know that. This lady was highly thought of by many people, not only those namely John and her children, but all who knew the truth thought a great deal of her. That begs a significant question on my life and yours, doesn't it? Do others think highly of you and me always and not only on Sundays or not only upon Wednesdays perhaps? The Lord calls us to lead a life of constancy, doesn't it? In fact, what was the statement in Luke 9 verse 23? If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. How often, Lord? Daily. And follow me. This lady, perhaps by the name of Kyria, was a person who not only was highly respected by John, but highly respected by all who knew and loved the truth. May that same thing be said of you and me. But especially, what about verse 4? I rejoiced greatly, John said, that I found of thy children walking in truth. 
her children had been sufficiently influenced apparently by her that they too had come to walk according to or in the truth. And again, what a monumental consideration as it relates to the influence of godly parents, perhaps especially a godly mother. That person who those children come to understand lives the very thing that she preaches by virtue of God's Word, and they are sufficiently influenced by it. How many of us can be so thankful for a godly mother, a godly father, an individual who took the opportunity and challenge to discipline us accordingly and to set before us an example of righteousness? Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. The God's sacred promise of Proverbs 22, 6. Can we not recall that those words of challenge to not only fathers but all parents Bring up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, Ephesians 6, verse 4. Those words are echoed in Colossians chapter 3. In each instance, we can see that the example set before us by virtue of this perhaps nameless lady is that she walked in the truth and guided her children accordingly. Why is it, I suppose, that John the Baptist was so highly respected and a person who was so pleasing to God. When we read Luke chapter 1 verse 6, we are not left to doubt. For there it is stated that his parents, namely Elizabeth and Zechariah, walked in all the commandments of the Lord blameless. If they walked in all the commandments of the Lord blameless, they instilled within their son John the same degree of interest and concern for the truth, and he too walked in all the ways of the Lord blameless. May we then see as parents and as grandparents and those who are merely older that we have a tremendous opportunity to exhibit godliness and righteousness in our life and there are young eyes who are watching. Oh, they may not always make comment, but they are watching. And as they grow and mature and face decisions in their life, they will find themselves drawing upon what they have seen in the lives of others so that they can make the appropriate and right decisions themselves. The Bible helps us as we consider this lady to note the very same idea. As our consideration of her moves onward, notice with me verses 9, 10, and 11 of 2 John. This lady apparently had a very tender and compassionate heart. In fact, verses 9 through 11 remind her, and John felt the need to do this, that she would not array herself with antichrists and thus support doctrine that's false. In other words, she needed to safeguard the truth in her life. Isn't that a good warning for us still today? Though we know the truth, we can also be led astray as we learn in our study of 2 Peter. But in so doing, note the warning given unto her. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. This lady was thus told, in the matter and in the process of safeguarding the truth in your life, you must not endorse or encourage or support that which is false. In so doing, you not only will maintain the security of truth in yourself, you will also be able to hopefully touch those who are in error 
and cause them to think about the choices that they have made and the doctrinal pursuits that they have made. Those words ring ever as true today as they did then. We too should be so thankful for our elders and for those who make the decisions that they carefully scrutinize and how well they have done it to make sure that that which we support is truthful in accordance to the words of the Scriptures. But may we individually do the same and give no credence or encouragement to that which is an error or that which is false. Could it not be said that one passage that maybe comes to our mind so very quickly in light of this, this statement is the first three words of verse 8. To this lady, this elect lady, John said, Look to yourselves. You and I have a responsibility involving our own salvation. I fully understand that there are those of the Calvinistic persuasion who say that God does all of it. Salvation is entirely of Him and we have nothing to do. But friends, the Bible doesn't teach that. Paul said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2.12. And we are admonished ourselves to obey the truth. We have a part to play in response to God's grace. To this lady, John says, look to yourself. You have a responsibility to maintain your interest and walk in truth. And in so doing, that is an important responsibility. And it has remained so even, of course, for you and me today. As we study the Scriptures and always make certain to array our life in accordance with that which the Bible teaches, that is our responsibility and how eternally significant that is. So far, we have seen much that's commendable about the elect lady. We might like to know more, but the Holy Spirit hasn't seen fit to record other factors about her life for us. Let us consider another character to be found in these books. Would you consider also a man by the name of Gaius? The opening verse of 3 John reads as follows, The elder unto the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. The individual and those, of course, who are participating in the Bible Bowl might take note. Third John was addressed to Gaius, inasmuch as second John was addressed to the elect lady and her children. What do we know about Gaius? This book also reveals some interesting things. First, from verse 1, Gaius was called well-beloved. That is to say, he was one of much love and one who was thought of very highly and loved very deeply by very many people. You and I can also understand how wonderful it is in the church to know of that love. Brothers and sisters who are concerned not simply because of what money I may or may not have or because of other pomp and circumstance I can give or share with them, but they're concerned about you and me as individuals because we're brothers and we're sisters in Christ. Here Gaius was called well-beloved, and John said he loved him in the truth. We notice another person, not just the elect lady, but Gaius, who also walked according to truth. He did not rely upon human speculation and human opinion. He didn't guide his life by what the other individuals may have said or taught. He was guided by the truth. Isn't it fascinating that as we look further, that truth was exemplified in a very specific way. In verse number 5, Beloved, Thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers. 
which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well. <clears throat> Gaius, it would seem, had opened his house, if you will, and extended some powerful hospitality to not only brethren, but strangers who had traveled in his vicinity. Again, as we've often noted, this was long before the days when there was a Holiday Inn or a Motel 6, long before the days when there were these public opportunities so easily to be found like that. Now, we remember there were inns, but they were not many in number. But on this occasion where Gaius lived, he had opened his house hospitably. He had shared his very place of abode with not only brethren, but strangers. And note that he was highly commended for that activity. John expressly notes that they had done that faithfully. The American Standard notes that he had been a faithful brother in executing that opportunity. That does lead us to notice the power and beauty of showing hospitality when that's appropriate. Might we remember that that will be one of the things mentioned on the Day of Judgment. In Matthew, the 25th chapter, beginning in verse 31, as Jesus gave that vivid picture of the judgment, we might remember that there were two classes. All nations were divided into the sheep on the one hand, the goats on the other, and as the Savior addressed them, to each group he made note of six ideas, and one of which was, I was a stranger, and you took me in. To those on the other hand, he said, you took me not in. The distinction one had exhibited and showed hospitality, using the capabilities that he or she had at his disposal, and made note of it, used it for the betterment of the physical condition of others. Oh, the amazing nature of showing hospitality when we have opportunity to do so. On this occasion, this Gaius had not only done that, but so much so that verse number 6 says that others have borne witness of thy charity before the church. It would seem that his name was known far and wide, if you will, Others were aware of his disposition toward truth and what he had accomplished in the extending of hospitality. Could we not say that you and I also are told to be ministers of mercy, those who exhibit concern and compassion? What was it that Jesus stated as he closed that interesting parable in Luke chapter 10? We call it the parable of the Good Samaritan, but what happened? We remember that individual who was left for half dead, if you will. A Levite, as well as a priest, passed by and did nothing. And yet a lowly Samaritan came to the aid of this Jewish individual. And even though there was much animosity between the races themselves, that Samaritan showed kindness and was a neighbor to the man in need. As Jesus closed that discussion in verse 37 of that chapter, what did he say? Go and do thou likewise. That entire proceeding began by a lawyer asking, Who is my neighbor? The answer was a very deep one, wasn't it? Profound, without question. And at the end, Jesus said, We also ought to be good neighbors by addressing the needs of those who are in need. You and I too, thus, can find ourselves in the same position as Gaius. When we come to the aid of a person who is suffering and in, under affliction and in need, it's fair to note also that that godly life that Gaius exhibited was well observed by many others. 
Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. We understand we don't do good works to bring the credit to ourselves. In fact, that's anathema to the person interested in pleasing God. All the glory belongs to Him. But that does teach us, doesn't it, that when we merely do what God has given us the capability to do, others by our exhibition of our faith will see that which we are and do. And they too shall be led to glorify the God whom we love. That was true of Gaius, for he was well beloved in the truth. Isn't it fair to say in light of these passages and these texts that the good works that we do should strive then to bring glory and honor to the very God whom we love and His Son, Christ Jesus. The fairness with which we can close this might well be stated in verse number 8. We therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. Would you comment with me about the nature of that word fellow helper? That means to be a helper with. Gaius was a helper with God in the accomplishment of the nature of truth. Is that true of us today? According to 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 through 9, absolutely. Paul said, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. And three verses later, we are God's husbandry. We are fellow workers, fellow helpers with God. That, of course, doesn't mean that you and I are almighty like He is, but when we put into practice the things He's taught, when we exhibit in our life the commandments He's given, that word will not return to Him void, Isaiah 55, 11. And as such, we, in fact, will be able to work with Him in the accomplishment of His will. That never ceases to be an amazing thought. Gaius was doing that very thing, and cannot we do the same? What about the third individual in these books? Would you also consider with me a man named Diotrephes in verse number 9? Would you read with me verses 9 and 10, please? I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. So far as we've studied the elect lady as well as Gaius, we have found tremendous examples of goodness that we can emulate. When we arrive at Diotrephes, it's just the opposite. We arrive at one whom we should not seek to pattern our life after. Notice again verse number 9. Diotrephes who loveth to have the preeminence among them. Diotrephes is only mentioned this one time in the entirety of the New Testament. But legions and legions have been the numbers of those who have lived just like him. Let us review then briefly Diotrephes and how we cannot make the same mistake he did. He loved to have the preeminence. That means he loved to have the first place. He desired above all things else to have the name and the recognition. If we may so describe it, it was his way or no way. He loved to have the preeminence. It was his desire and will to lord himself or exalt himself above others and give directions and commandments and orders. He was a dictator. His desire was to be a tyrant, to control other people. And as such, he was a very selfish person. 
it again must be my way or no way. As we consider the nature of this man named Diotrephes, would you also notice, especially in verse 10, two of the things said about him. He says he prated against us. That means he slandered us. He spoke verbally things about us that were not true. And furthermore, it was with malicious words. These things he spoke were hurtful, damaging, suffering to the truth. And furthermore, he wasn't content with that. But verse number 10, he didn't receive the brethren. There were those who in kindness apparently came to that area and were desirous of correcting or at least exhibiting toward him a need for some change. Diotrephes didn't even receive them. He cast others out of the church who desired to receive them. May we note that this was a man who deemed himself exceedingly important. He perhaps exalted himself to the point others he thought ought to come for him for advice and to come to him for the counsel that he thought he could so wisely give. Diotrephes loved to have the preeminence among them. All throughout the sacred pages of God's Word, aren't we warned about that kind of attitude? Aren't we warned of the danger that lurks when we lift ourselves so high that we refuse the kind thoughts of others who are wise? In fact, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse number 12, as Paul wrote to that congregation in Corinth, he expressly warned them about the very thought of, Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. All those individuals who think that they stand and who think that they are all sufficient and that all answers rest with them ought to be mighty careful, for a mighty great fall is shortly in their future. Think about some other passages to be found in the Bible. In Matthew 23, beginning in verse 6 of that chapter, a chapter that's rather familiar to us, Jesus, our Savior, made a lengthy discussion about Pharisees and some of the ills and evils with which they themselves occupied their time. Listen to some of their descriptions. They love to have the chief seats in the synagogues and they love to stand praying so that all can hear them. Why is that? They wanted to have a name. They wanted others to watch them and know how supposedly righteous and pious they were. Later on he'd say, but inwardly they're full of dead men's bones. Later he would say, you be not called rabbi, rabbi, and be not recognizing of the fact that we have but one father. Let no man be called your father. The very names that they like to be called, Jesus said, you don't call me in that. Or what about other passages that encourage us similarly? Do we recall in Luke the 14th chapter where there Jesus said, He that is humbled, God will exalt. But he that exalted himself, God will abase. You see, God takes care of those that are his own. When they do humbly that which they're able to do, God will in fact lift them up himself. Men will not need to do that. God will do that. But on the other hand, when we, like Diotrephes, lift ourselves up, might we never forget that we already have our reward. Jesus taught that very lesson early in Matthew chapter 6. In regard to those who fasted merely so that others could see, and those who prayed long prayers in public so simply so that others could hear, 
Jesus said, be advised, they already have their reward. Meaning what? There is no eternal reward waiting. We must be humble. We must then, unlike Diotrephes, submit ourselves to the will of God. And may we note that even elders are to be humble. When Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, he expressly said of elders, they are not to lord it over the flock. Meaning that they are not dictators or tyrants. They do watch for our souls, and as such, in love, they submit themselves just as much as anyone else to the sacred word of God. Titus 1, verse 9. In consideration of these facts, how important humility is, and Diotrephes didn't have it. Could we then see in that so many problems throughout the ages that have resulted because men have refused to be humble? In our Wednesday night studies coming up in the next few weeks, we will, in fact, in light of the Reformation movement, see a number of examples of how this, in part, has led to the religious division that describes our landscape around our world today. Men who refused to submit to the truth of God, but wanted a name and wanted the recognition themselves. But perhaps in light of diatrophies, what about another positive example? Consider Demetrius. He is mentioned in the book of 3 John. Would you note with me verse number 12? 3 John verse 12. Demetrius hath good report of all men and of the truth itself. Yea, and we also bear record, and ye know that our record is true. In light of Demetrius, many of the things to be noted, again, not many details are given, but oh, how much is said in so few words. Demetrius hath good report. It, was, it seems that he may well have been the person who carried the book from John to Gaius. If that's true, we notice that within it, John gave a great commendation of Demetrius. He, in fact, had a good report. That word in the Greek means testimony. Demetrius had a good testimony of not only the brethren, but also they that appreciated the truth. That sounds much like the elect lady in some ways, doesn't it? And it also sounds much like Gaius. Of course, that ought to, too, sound like you and me. Could I ask you to note, though, in light of that thought and idea, that he had good report or good testimony of all men? How highly is your name regarded? Make that personal. How highly is my name regarded? When your name is spoken, do others come to appreciate the sense of purity and respect that you have? Do they think maybe about Proverbs chapter 22, verse number 1, in which it says that a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches? That's a powerful passage, isn't it? And young people, listen to me carefully, please. Of course, it's important for all of us to maintain a good name. We can influence so many for good, but young people, others are not so interested in your good name. They would much more find it interesting for you to do what they do, whether that be bad or not. Be cautious, be careful, think wisely and soundly, turn to those older who are godly for advice, and as you make those decisions, realize you should protect that good name, for it's a name you can use to glorify God. And you and I cannot glorify Him easily with a tarnished name, with a name that is dragged through that which is not good and which represents that which men know is not in harmony with God's will. 
The very thought then of the name of Demetrius has rung now for 20 centuries of that which is good. Will your name and mine ring for years to come on what is good and honorable and noble and just? If we think upon those things, Philippians 4a, then our life will exhibit that on which we think. It's fair to say in regard to Demetrius that he, in verse number 11, imitated that which was good. For John there says, Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. To pursue that which is good. It may sound so simple, but yet it's so deep and profound. As you and I seek to pursue that, we would then be just like Demetrius and exemplify the same matters in life as the elect lady and as Gaius. But we would, of course, shun that which we see in Diotrephes. Perhaps one final character worthy of our consideration. The very one who perhaps you have been waiting to see. The very one who wrote these books. The books of 2nd and 3rd John, of course, are brief, but what does the message indicate about John? What lessons does it show to you and me about the nature of John himself? He was an apostle, that we know. But when, when we consider the subjects that he addresses, isn't it fair to make the following statements? That even though John was, is called the elder, he calls himself the elder in both books, meaning that he was advanced in years, Nonetheless, we see in him a personal and careful consideration for brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, the words he uses seems to have ached his heart when he wrote about Diotrephes. For he said, when I come, I'll have to address the evil he's done. And that didn't make John happy. But oh, what a smile we maybe can see on his face when he described the elect lady and Gaius and Demetrius. And as he wrote to them, he was concerned about their walk in truth. We see in John, then, a personal interest in the welfare of other Christians. It's true, we are bonded together in this beautiful body of Christ known as the church. But the church consists of individuals, men and women, boys and girls, who each are, are in love with the Lord Himself and who love the God, who loves the God of the Bible and who are desirous of one day entering the golden portals of glory. We're individuals, and as thus we exhibit hospitality and consideration and interest and love and well-being one to another, we would be acting just like John. We have the opportunity many times to thus exhibit those very characterizations and those very matters to others as we consider some of the things that John addressed. Notice the intense interest he showed then in the personal nature of the church. Church is not merely an assembly where we come together to take up a couple of hours a week. I hope it's far more than that to all of us. If it's not, we individually have a spiritual problem, and it's serious. The church should be a vibrant and enthusiastic organization that has an eternal mission, a mission to save the sin-sick souls of men and women a mission to glorify the God of heaven, a mission to share forth to the whole world the beauty and power of what happened on a cross about 20 centuries ago. And when we exhibit that in our lives individually, the church will reflect it. And we will in fact grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 3.18 
We can also say, though, that if that's not the case in my life, if I see the church as more or less an optional thing, if I see the church as just somewhere to go to take up a little time on Sunday before I can get back to eat dinner and watch a ball game, then I quickly need to intervene at once. Something needs to be done. I don't want to die in that state. Jesus died to establish that church. If it had been no more important than that, he would never have died for it. If it had been no more important than that, he would never have shed his blood for it. The church is eternally significant, and if I'm not a member of it, faithfully that is, according to Ephesians 5.23, I'm lost. I'm without God, I'm without Christ, and I'm without hope. Ephesians 2 verse 12. In light then of these examples that we've seen today, could we summarize by saying the following? As we close our lesson, we've looked at the people to be found in the books of 2nd and 3rd John. We have exemplified and seen the power in the life of the elect lady, the godliness of her motherhood to those who were her children. We noted the hospitality shown forth by Gaius and how that others were aware of his faithfulness and his walk in truth. We did see, unfortunately, the evil of the preeminence and the desire to be found in diatrophies and how that we too should shun and avoid it. We also saw Demetrius and the good report he had shown forth to others. Finally, we have noted the personal interest to be found in the life of John. In thinking about all of them, the question now arises, which are you today? Are you more like Demetrius or are you more like Diotrephes? Don't be a Diotrephes. Don't think that your will is above that of the Lord, but rather if you aren't a Christian, come to Him humbly, submitting to His will. If we could assist you in your initial obedience to the gospel, believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name, be immersed, be baptized. If you've done that but need to come back to your first love, we can accomplish that by the character of your confession and your own repentance and our prayers. All of that we'd be happy to do. And if we can help you today publicly, don't delay, but let that be known while together we stand and while we sing.